Hello and welcome to Close Talking, the world's most popular poetry analysis podcast from Cardboard Box Productions Incorporated. I am co-host Jack Rossiter-Munley, and with my good friend Connor McNamara-Stratton, we read a poem, talk about the poem, and read the poem again. Before we get into today's selection, a quick note that if you like what we do here at Close Talking and have a spare minute of your time, it would mean the world to us if you would give the podcast a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Those ratings and reviews help boost us up the algorithm and find new listeners. And if you have suggestions for future episodes or comments on this one, you can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And you can also find us on social media. On Twitter, the show is at Close Talking. I am at Jack Rossiter Munn. And Connor is at Connor M. Stratton. On Instagram, the show is at Close Talking Poetry. And on Facebook, it's facebook.com slash close talking. We also have a website, closetalking.com, where you can find all of the past episodes of the podcast. On with the show. Hey everybody, this is Jack. Just jumping in quickly because this is part three in our three-part series about poetry, the terrorist attacks of September 11th, and the aftermath of those attacks. And we're picking up right where the second episode left off, which was moving into a discussion about the ways that the attacks of September 11th created systems and infrastructure that exists to this day, and the ways that different poets have critiqued those systems or continued to put focus on them in ways that sometimes the popular media focus has moved away from over time. So we hope you enjoy this episode, and here you go. The use of Guantanamo Bay, which was established before 9-11, but the use of it as a convenient site to basically hold people indefinitely to the system of extraordinary rendition that was going on around the world um, it's it's really, again, it's important to to have those decentering pieces to not just acknowledge that it's a terrible system or to acknowledge the horror, but to look at it from the point of view of somebody who was forced to live through it, who was on the receiving end of those actions because those actions were horrible and reprehensible. But a lot of the people who were involved with them, who have remained part of the organizations that undertook them they're still around. They're still running those organizations. They are still not in jail and likely never will be. Um, and that is a testament to the power of institutions, particularly security institutions, military institutions in the United States. So the the ways that poetry and literature are an, are an access point for criticisms and critiques is is really important. Yeah, yeah. I think I. I mean, Solmaz Sharif has written a lot that gets at that in a lot of different ways. Obviously, we talked about her poem "Perception Management," which is literally just a list of different operations that the U.S. military has undertaken. Um, but really, uh, huge amounts of her body of work are just really incisive uh, looks at that kind of post nine eleven security state that just grew and grew and grew. She's primarily looking at the sort of national or international level through the CIA and other uh, entities like that. But there's also, obviously, as the present conversation that has been going on around race and policing in the United States this year, so much of the militarization of police forces has happened since 9-11 through decommissioning of 
of uh, military equipment that is then acquired through programs set up after 9-11. The Department of Homeland Security only exists because 9-11 happened. The third largest uh, government agency was created in the wake of 9-11. It didn't always exist. It hasn't always been around. Uh, it's new. It's really new. And and so, again, it's just these these different ways that 9-11 is, is so omnipresent in contemporary life if you look just a little bit below the surface. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. And she, she, Somal Sharif also, she has a great series of poems. They're really fascinating. Um, they're called Letters to Guantanamo. And they're like, she has, she also has this great essay on erasure poetry. And basically it's why she thinks it's bad is the crude version of it. Um, but these poems are kind of erasure poems, but she like erased their, she wrote them, but then erased them. So it's not like she took, it's not a typical erasure poem in that like um, you take an existing document and then you make a poem by, you know, like isolating some of the text. She, she sort of wrote this poem and then there are these letters to someone who's in Guantanamo and then because like of, you know, censorship and stuff, uh, she kind of like creates this erasure effect where, um, you know, it's just this, these kind of love letters, but then all of a sudden there's just total blank, like, and then I told her, and then it's like quotes with nothing in it. Um, and it's, it's a really interesting cause it, yeah, kind of like the other, there's so many dimensions of it, of everything. <laughs> um, but like, you know, on the one hand you have like, Lundies, which are kind of like showing a, a a personal sort of centering of someone outside the U.S. experiencing sort of the force of, you know, U.S. empire. But then you have like Soma Sharif's poem, like, which, which kind of humanize, um, it's like the attempts to be human, like within U.S. empire, you know, but then the kind of censorship kind of like is trying to interrupt that. And then there's this other poem, which is a little longer, so I, I won't read all of it, but that I found really interesting and fairly disturbing, but like, um, it's by this poet, um, Alice Alusi, um, who, uh, her mother is from Detroit and her father is from Baghdad. Um, and she wrote this poem called Lindy's Other Voice. Um, and it's about Lieutenant Lindy England, um, who was, who tortured Iraqi prisoners in Abu Ghraib um, and was sentenced for it. Um, and it sort of notes that when she was sentenced, she was six months pregnant at the time. Um, and so it's kind of this poem that's, like from, an, it's like the speaker is Lindy, but like another Lindy, basically. Um, and yeah, it's like, um, we were all just bodies, some on top, some on bottom. We called it training. The fence 
was invisible, guidelines never given, torture pure, not simple. You could have asked me what day it was, who my friends were, I didn't know. They were all the same until they weren't. It's hard for you to believe I'm not the woman you saw doing those things. She is the dirt I was born into, but not the fruit from my tree. When I have my child, I will not name him in regret or sorrow from false love or secrets held. I will call him for the miracle he is to have come from this, nothing else. Which has a lot in it. Um, and it's probably too much to unpack right now, but to me, there's also this, like, there's the humans who are uh, of the institutions of empire. Um, and so this poem is like, I don't know, just like a, a kind of this imaginative of someone who's, who's sort of, who performed among the most brutal end edge of empire, you know, like actual torture. Um, and like sometimes, I don't know, trying to hold all of that is, is difficult, but I often can get into this space where I'm just like the U S system of whatever. And then it's just this system that just happens, right? Because of, uh, you know, capitalism and et cetera, and racism. But while there are, while those things work, there's also individual people who are doing that work. And like they're as much people as anyone else. Not that we should like, um, feel bad for them but the imaginative act of like oh you're a human and you've done this can be really important and it's sort of when you were tying in you know the militarization of the police there was a recent episode of the daily um which on the one hand it's like classic new york times subject where it's like this black police officer in Flint. And so it's like, okay, you're, not, you're gonna prioritize the, the perspective of the police more than the people hurt by them. But okay, New York Times, we'll take you where you're, where you're giving it. Um, but I will say, they you know, let him speak and there's a very powerful moment at the end where they're kind of asking him like, you know, um, do you think, cause basically there's, it's like, it's a very racist police force, uh, the white police officers. And he's like tried to be a good cop basically is the story. And he's like, well, when I think about like my individual actions like day to day, you know, I think, okay, those were good. But then when I think about like my whole career and like how have things not changed since I started, then I'm like, 
I don't really know if I've done anything at all, basically. Um, and I don't know. I, I think like, I don't, again, I don't want to, these things are tricky because I, I don't think that the, the centering should necessarily be on the police, but I think like, it's an interesting example, especially, you know, of course, because he is black. And so he is sort of like coming at it from a distinctly different subject position. To some extent, a lot of us are in the US kind of pushers or complicit in the empire, whether it's just, you know, if we're in corporate America, we're selling products or whatever, or doing marketing, but we're moving the sort of engine along and it can feel like an ethically neutral activity. But there's people who like are at the kind of violent sort of edge of things who do the dirty work of the system. Um, and it's complicated because I think someone who fancies themselves in a neutral job would like to think that maybe those positions that are more brutal have nothing to do with me. Um, when, you know, depending on what you think, some people might say that that violence allows the rest of it to kind of function, right? That, you know, in, in certain brutal cases, like a company wants to do this mine or this dam and it makes a lot of money. And then when you get the energy to do X, Y, and Z, okay, great. But first you have to displace all the people who live there. Um, and, you know, that process is incredibly violent. And that's all part of the same system. You know, like the, the North wants to think of itself as separate from the South, but the cotton that was in the Northern factories that made all of the products that made them filthy rich and the banks in the North that were financiers and made everyone filthy rich, you know, came from the wealth that was produced and extracted brutally from the South. Um, which is just to say, I do think some, some people, including myself, um, who can sometimes have the privilege of being separate from, from those sort of like more violent parts of things, like um, imagining, not like as a way to feel necess even necessarily empathy, yeah, I just, I found that poem, like, it's so lyrical and beautiful. Um, and like, it's about the, one of the most disturbing subjects um, I can think about. In many ways, it's similar to some of what we were talking about with the attacks of 9-11 themselves in that it's basically calling for more complexity. Because yeah. on one level, what was happening at Abu Ghraib is very not complex. It was horrible degradation and torture. There were people doing it, though. And I think that's, that's some of what I found so interesting about the poem. There were a couple of things that stuck out to me, which is 
one talking about that like this is the i forget the exact term that was used but like this is the soil i grew in oh um, um and also talking about the flower or the fruit that i blossom into and that to me felt like uh, addressing sort of an interesting tension that went on around once the abuses at Abu Ghraib were discovered, there was this intense effort to make that an outlier. It only happened there. It was the bad actions of individuals. And so what it seems to me this poem is doing a little bit is rectifying that narrative where obviously the actions of the individuals were terrible, but as has been shown through further investigation and more stories coming forward and more evidence and there was, in fact, an entire documentary called Standard Operating Procedure that basically uncovered or talked to a number of people who uh, were, you know, open about the fact that this kind of treatment of prisoners was exactly what it sounds like. It was standard operating procedure. And that doesn't make it right in any way. It just makes it uh, a different kind of evil or a different kind of bad. And so obviously the individuals still made horrible choices and were still doing terrible things, but it was as part of a system. And that was really what the effort about trying to say, oh, it was a few bad apples, a ridiculous expression, because the actual expression is that a few bad apples do spoil the bunch. Like, <laughs> I can't... It, mm. uh, yeah, but in terms of the both the reference to the ground that one is growing out of and the fruit you're going to blossom into, the fruit that was blossomed into was being the bad apple of the state, the scapegoat for this unquestionably horrible action, but to cover up the systemic nature of it. And right. so, I think also looking at what is it, <laughs> you know, like you you hear stories about the guards at prison camps going to town to try and pick up girls like everybody who was doing these horrible things was still human and that in fact that complexity is worth investigating in the acts of horror and the acts of evil the fact that they were still people doesn't i think too often that's used as like a sympathetic crutch or like hitler loved dogs is the big cliche you know iteration of that right, right. but like, understanding that other human beings are capable of horrible acts is actually an important thing to think about and to investigate and to understand about what it means to be a person in the world. And I think that that's, that's what I was responding to in that poem as well. And, and I totally also agree with everything you were saying about, you know, what are the voices that need to be prioritized when and how and where, um, but also as that episode of the daily shows or uh, there's, a documentary that Jelani Cobb did with Frontline that they're actually doing a follow-up to called Policing the Police, where he just rode along with the Newark Police Department. And so he talked to a lot of people, but a lot of what it is is like him spending time with police. And so the, the primary people who are, you know, being presented are police officers, but there is such a power in presenting what they just unquestionably, unquestioningly there's such a power in presenting what they unquestioningly see as their job. Like he talks about the first ride alongs just being astonished at what they did every single day and saw no problems with. And the viewer themselves is also astonished. And so I think there's also an element of that sometimes where when you put these viewpoints or the individuals who are in some ways already at the center of the story in the center in a reframed way, 
that can also be really powerful. And I felt like that's also some of what was going on in that poem where it's urging you to see like a complex human person who is now raising another human being in this world, who is in a way perpetuating, you know, the system of ongoing humanity, uh, who still <laughs> did all of these horrible things. Yeah. Like that's another person who is sharing the world with you. You have to reckon with that on some level. Um, and I think that that's a level of complexity that is useful to wrestle with. Yeah. Yeah, I really agree. It it reminds me. Okay, there's two other things in it. They ju they just seem so perfect that I have to mention them. Very quickly, I feel like two of the biggest poetic responses to 9/11 and its aftermath. One of which, incredibly controversial, was Amiri Baraka's poem "Somebody Blew Up America," which contains a lot of stuff there are quite a few videos you can find of him reading it on youtube and they're all about 10 minutes long because it's a pretty long poem but the controversy the seeds of the controversy he he brings up a whole lot of different critiques in it but he makes some pretty pointed and fairly anti-semitic remarks and there is uh there's a lot of anti-semitic conspiracy theories around 9 11 uh and he definitely presents them in the poem in, let's say, a sympathetic light. He seems to be signing on to them. And this was such a big deal that he had been appointed Poet Laureate of New Jersey in 2002. Not only was he removed from that position, but it was abolished. There was no <laughs> Poet Laureate of New Jersey because Amiri Baraka got so wild with his poems and not in a good way. Um, and that's probably like, not necessarily pop culture level of poetry after 9-11, but it's definitely one of the most known um, because it is both a very significant poetic response in terms of the uh, heft of what Baraka crafted and then also in terms of the controversy that it kicked up. Um, and for some, for a work of that length and of that kind of consistent criticism to come out so soon after the attacks, because it came out, I believe he he wrote it in and first was performing it in 2002 as well, uh, the same year that he was appointed Poet Laureate. And so that's very soon after the attacks. That whole first year kind of exists in that weird post-discursive space where almost any criticism was immediately quashed or pushed aside or the individual was, was strenuously attacked. Um, and then the other major poetic sort of intervention after 9-11 was Poets Against the War, which was helmed by Sam Hamill. Um, I appeared at a couple of Poets Against the War readings, submitted a poem to the Poets Against the War project as a young lad. Um, the poem was called A Short List, uh, A List of Things I've Learned in My Short Yet Somewhat Eventful Life. Oh, I like that. War bad, peace good. That was the whole poem. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a real thinker i like that yeah i uh i believe i introduced it at the reading by saying i thought because they sent some of the poems to the white house and i said i think it has a good chance that the president will read it because it doesn't have any big long words <laughs> yeah. oh my gosh young jack oh yeah i was a real radical it. yeah you're sticking it to the man 
Anyway, um, basically, Sam Hamill was invited to the White House by Laura Bush in January of 2003, and that was at a time when U.S. rhetoric around the lead-up to the war in Iraq was increasing. Um, and this was when the U.S. was continually changing what it wanted out of the U.N., and it was increasingly looking like whether the U.N. signed on to a resolution or not, the United States was committed to taking military action against Iraq under the pretense that they were either that they were manufacturing weapons of mass destruction and or that they had been involved in the uh, lead up to 9-11 and helping support terrorist groups that carried out the attacks, Al-Qaeda, um, both of which over time have been shown to be untrue. Uh, so he got this January 2003 invitation to the White House from Laura Bush, and he said, no, thank you. <laughs> I do not like what you're doing. I will not be attending, and in fact, I'm going to create a website, Poets Against the War, and I'm going to get poets from around the world to submit poems about how the war that your husband is trying to make happen is a terrible idea. And so um, that kind of period, January and February of 2003, was when a lot of the most intense international protesting was going on, and to this day, some of those protests are among the most attended protests in history and this was a part of that anti-war movement which was a global anti-war movement another element of the sort of post 9-11 story that i think gets left out as you were saying again these these events that feel fated because of their enormity or because they've gone on for so long like the wars in iraq and afghanistan this was an international anti-war movement opposed to those wars there were whole countries' governments who stood up at the United Nations, most famously France, hence our freedom fries, um, yeah. who actually stood up and were saying that they were unwilling to sign on to this military action because it seemed like unwise, aggressive military action under you know intelligence that was being stretched to the limits of believability. Colin Powell famously went to the UN to make the case. I remember watching that, and even though I was deeply opposed to the war, finding him a very compelling and convincing speaker, both because of the information that he presented, but because of who he was. I, of the members of the Bush administration, he was one who at that time, and, and even still I think has retained a little bit more integrity and credibility. Uh, and he has since come out and said that it is like one of the low points of his professional career and that he's you know, embarrassed by it, and he, he does not stand by essentially the information that he presented to the international community. And that was kind of the, the atmosphere at the time. Uh, there were a lot of people who were saying that about the, the presentation that he made and about the information that the administration was putting out, and poets were a significant part of that anti-war movement. There were tens of thousands of poems submitted to Poets Against the War from people all around the world. Um, Wow. So, yeah, poetry has had has had a big part in all parts of the of the 9-11 story, both from being a vessel for individuals to process their trauma after the attacks to the anti-war movement that came before the the Iraq war and began while the Afghanistan war was already underway. Uh, and then, as we were discussing, it's been a way to kind of decenter, problematize, and reshape thinking about the ways that 9-11 and its aftermath continue to be present in the world around us. Because what poetry is so good at doing 
um, politically and emotionally is digging under the surface of things. And oftentimes what poets are doing, even before they sit down to write, is that they are noticing something that is under the surface. And I feel like that's kind of where, particularly in the United States, but increasingly worldwide, that's where 9-11 lives. It lives one level under the surface, but when you scratch the surface, it's there. And it helps you understand so much about the way that the world around us is is structured. Yeah, no, that's really right. Maybe we could um, end with the with a excerpt from uh, Joy Harjo, um, who's our our current U.S. poet laureate. Um, yeah, she has a really, I don't know, just a kind of interesting way to leave things. Um, so this is from the poem, When the World as We Knew It Ended. Two towers rose up from the East Island of Commerce and touched the sky. Men walked on the moon. Oil was sucked dry by two brothers. Then it went down, swallowed by a fire dragon, by oil and fear, eaten whole. It was coming. We had been watching since the eve of the missionaries in their long and solemn clothes to see what would happen. Oof, perfect ending. I love that. Yeah. I feel like, that, that, that feels to me like it contains everything we've been talking about, all of the complexity of, of deep history, of, mm -hmm. of real pain and of personal and on some level national and international response to to a traumatic attack yeah she's good Hi, everybody. This is Jack again. Just really quickly wanted to say thank you so much for listening to this special little mini-series that we did on Poetry and 9-11. If this is the only episode in that series you've listened to, it is the third of three, and we would love it if you went back and listened to the other two. If you have any thoughts on the poems that we presented here and some of what we discussed, we would love to hear them. You can send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com. And the same is true if there are other events or subjects that you would like to see us do something like this for, we would love to hear suggestions. So please reach out to us and thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.